Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. All right, we're rolling. I'm back in Plenary Session, video edition, joined by friend of the show, Bishal Gaywali. Bishal's from Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, Canada. And I'm joined by newcomer to the show, uh, Nathan Cherney. Nathan Cherney is based out of Israel. He is a uh, legend in the field of oncology and palliative care. And he's going to be talking about uh, a new paper that both Bishal and Nathan have worked on. Um, it's the ESMO uh, uh, meaningful benefit score. Um, first, um, I just wanted to say, you know, before we started rolling, it's always the most fun conversation. Nathan was telling me, um, that he, he does occasionally listen to the show. Um, but, uh, you know, the COVID episodes, not all of those. And I was telling him not to worry. <laughs> Don't you worry because the COVID episodes are coming to a COVID end and I can, I can feel it. You know, I can feel it on Twitter. I don't know about you, Bishal I, and you, Nathan, I can feel it. Um, you know, the, the usual suspects have less and less to say. People are drifting back to their day jobs. Uh, for many of these people, that's going to be obscurity. Uh, and I, I look forward to that. I look forward to that. Bishal, any thoughts on the shift back to normalcy? I know how scared you are of COVID, even after getting both the vaccines. And course, <laughs> I wear my double mask every day. Both the vaccines, and Nathan is in Israel, so nothing to say about that. I have got only one vaccine, so do you want me to put this on before I talk? To you? <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, how are things in Israel on COVID? It looks wonderful, right? <laughs> yeah, we've really gone from a bad situation to a very blessed situation. Mm. A couple of months ago, we were one of the worst places in the world, and now we are one of the best. The the, vac the, the vaccine rollout was very smooth. It was very fast. It was extremely efficient, run by run by the 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 the, uh, the HMOs. Um, I think that eighty percent of the adult of the adult population is vaccinated. My sixteen year old is vaccinated, and my twelve year old daughter is likely to be vaccinated in the twelve in, in the next month. Um, we were down to 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 double digit numbers of new cases and no deaths. Um, you know, we still have we still have at work. We're still wearing masks in the streets. People are no longer wearing masks. Um, everyone who is doubly vaccinated has got a um, a computerized uh, generated pass. Mm. Um, gets you in. You know, so for instance, when you know, I went to a wedding last week, you have to show your double vaccination pass to be into the wedding the the uh, the wedding hall managers um are allowed to let in only 10 percent of people uh, in the wedding with, who are not vaccinated and if they've crossed that 10 percent if more than 10 percent turn up then they're going to send them home um but that just didn't happen almost everyone was vaccinated and um you know so the sense of returning to a to a level to a level of normalcy 
is concern about the Indian variant. Um, and, and I know that there have been a couple of cases of people presenting with the Indian variant in Israel who have been doubly vaccinated, but, but they, had, they, 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 they had mild disease. Right. That's, what, that's my understanding. Um, no, yeah, and I, of course, um, you know, my, my heart goes out to places that are still grappling with the worst of things, such as India. Um, and I do, uh, and I've written uh, that, you know, there, that I, written, I wrote a long time ago that we should have been deploying things to India uh, even before all this latest stuff hit. Um, and they will continue, I think, I'm afraid, to deal with these challenges. But the situation in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, uh, and in Israel uh, is a different situation. And I think um, we have to be able to uh, just say that. And um, Michelle, you're going to say something? Yeah, I wanted to like add some caution or some, some bad news to this good news that we have been discussing about COVID because my, my parents are back in Nepal and uh, the situation with India and Nepal is, is getting worse every day. Yeah. Uh, in that whole subcontinent and and uh, i think uh, yeah this is also a lesson that uh, well one mistake we did in our part of the world was that uh, because we were not as severely hit with the first two waves we are very complacent and we're starting to have all these wedding parties and political rallies although none of us were vaccinated uh, without any social distancing and other precautions uh, and this uh, double mutant <laughs> variant it, it hit hard and none of us were prepared we we had that time because through nature for whatever reason we were not as badly hit by the by the first uh, two waves but now but we did not use that time to prepare ourselves better uh, so i hope uh, i hope uh, the whole world and the global community will will help out by by sending the vaccines and and you know, uh, I, I, I'm actually a dual national. I'm, a, I'm Australian and Israeli. And um, I've just been following the story right now that the Australian government is not allowing, there are, there are 10,000 Australians who are currently in India and the Australian government is not allowing them back into Australia. Yes, um, that's, their, that's their tactic all along. Yeah. Yes, um, they have. Yeah. Yeah, but they, that raises a whole, all sorts of issues about citizenships and citizenship yes. and rights. And, um, you know, they're... they're there, there, there could well be a constitutional crisis out of this. Yes. You, you all said you didn't want to hear a COVID episode. <laughs> We're going to get a COVID episode. But I will say, you know, I am working on some stuff about, you know, um, the situation in India. I do think uh, there's some things we can do. I also think, you know, it's interesting. India, when they locked down initially, they locked down really hard. And they locked down in a place so hard where it was really hard for poor people. And then, of course, you know, I think one of the things that we've long did not discuss well is that whatever things you do have to be sustainable. And you can lock down rock hard for a month. The hardest lockdown imaginable, shutting down national transit transit, making people bike thousands of miles home, um, but you can't sustain it forever and people may may rebound in a different way. Yeah. And, and that might be some of what we're seeing, uh, but it's hard to know. Um, but anyway, I think uh, I think my heart goes out to India. Um, and uh, I think we have to also recognize that some places are in a good place. And uh, I think you can you can mourn for the tough stuff and you can also be grateful for the good places too. Um, but with that, let's talk about Cancer medicine, because that's what we're here to talk about, cancer medicine. Cancer medicine doesn't take a day off. Cancers doesn't take a day off. We don't take a day off either. Um, and I will say that throughout this whole pandemic, I have uh, been reporting in person to duty. I, I, suspect, I know Bashal has been doing the same. Nathan, I imagine you've been you know, doing the same. The thing about being a physician is uh, it is a, it is a duty. I use the word duty. That's a word that um, appears to be being deleted from the vocabulary, but I don't delete it. I think a duty means, um, you know, you have a short time on this earth 
and you have a duty to try to make the world better for other people. And however you can apply your talents and skills to that duty, that's your business. Um, you know, that's not for me to decide. Um, but I think uh, it is important. And I, uh, I curse those who don't see duty in their life and want to talk to me about retiring early at the age of 37 or something like that. I curse them because that's not what life's about. You don't retire. You're not, you don't get out of this game. We'll tell you when you're done. Um, but you both... Um, I wonder if you might talk for a minute, I mean, um, about, you know, what your practice is like, um, because I mean, I, Bishal has been on the show a couple of times, but I don't think, I don't think I've explicitly asked you and Nathan, I don't know too much about, you know, your clinical life, but I wonder if you might talk for a little bit about your background, how you balance your time between research and clinical work, um, before we talk about the, the paper we're going to talk about today. Um, Bishal, how about you? How, how do you, how do you juggle these two things? And also, you know, another continent in Nepal. Uh, yeah, when, when I was having this discussion with Nathan a couple of months ago, he uh, when I said that I have I have three half day clinics a week, he, he Nathan thought that it was a luxury, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I I do three half day clinics. What tumor what, types do you see, Michelle? What is well, yeah? What is your what are your clinics? Uh, currently, I'm doing lung cancer and GI cancer and brain tumors. No oh, brain tumors. Okay. Okay. And, um, and then the rest of the time is research. Yeah. The rest of the time is research and teaching. Yeah. All, all like research plus teaching the whole academia package. And <laughs> you mean, I think the academia package is tweeting, writing grants, and then complaining about the grants on Twitter and then some teaching, some research, and then maybe rarely seeing patients. That's what I gather, but you know, okay. Everyone's different. No, good. Letting this big publisher's company make money is also. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Paying the open access fee, reviewing for free, giving Elsevier <laughs> Saunders your free, um, your free IP. Yeah, that's the academic life. Nathan, how about you? How do you how do you divide your time in Israel? Well, uh, I wear two hats. I'm both a general general medical oncologist as well as chief of palliative medicine. Um, my my practice, uh, my, uh, my oncology practice is a totally general. I'm a general oncologist. I see really the full tumor, the full gamut of solid tumor diseases, um, and um, and uh, and I also oversee a palliative care program, um, which is a rich interdisciplinary program, including um, uh, um, specialty palliative care, specialty nurses, the first spiritual care training program in Israel, uh, psychologists, social workers. Um, an, an acute inpatient palliative medicine, palliative care department, which is integrated with the, the oncology in, inpatient department. Um, and I, I am seeing patients four days a week. Um, I, I do conduct two teaching rounds a week. Um, on, on, you know, that was Mondays and Thursdays. And I have my, my, my holy day is my Wednesday. Wednesday is a an, a total non-clinical day and you know, dedicated for, to, to, for research and writing. Um, I have been blessed not to be bound by grants because most of my research over the last yeah. 10 years has been really done work done um, uh, through the agency or in collaboration with the European Society for Medical Oncology, who, who have been extremely supportive, particularly in my, in my endeavours in, in terms of public health research, in palliative care, in general oncology, in, in the integration of oncology and palliative medicine. And you know, over, the, over the last... 10 years really, or 10, 10 years with driving this issue of developing a, a, a reliable and validated tool to be able to evaluate how much benefit anti-cancer treatments really provide. That's terrific. And, and this is where the ESMO tool comes in. And I wonder if we might um, just talk about it. I mean, I think uh, 
all three of us in our in our own ways, we all we're all frustrated by the same things in in this field, and that is that we pay a lot of money. We're certainly paying them. We're willing to pay the money. You know, that's the that's the part that uh, you know we don't have to sell anyone on. We're paying a ton of money. What are we getting for that money? And we're getting a bunch of patented compounds that we administer with uh, massive uh, implications on redistributing capital to shareholders um, that sometimes are truly transformative drugs like Gleevec, drugs like uh, maybe rituximab. Um, but more often, too often, maybe too often is the right way to put it, um, they are marginal, the regorafenibs of the world. And every time I think about regorafenib, I think about a, mar- a marginal benefit in a probably in an idealized an idealized population looks nothing like clinical practice. When I think about Avastin or Ramucirumab, I know Bashal loves to pick on Ramucirumab because Ramucirumab is no good. I mean, it's just not a good drug. And and I don't know. You knew it wasn't good because the thing you're trying to knock off Avastin that's no good. So you knew it was no good when you were making it. Okay, so we're frustrated by this. And the reality is, these systems they often pay a lot of money for these very marginal drugs. But the challenge, I think. Um, well, at least one of the challenges um, is um, is that it's very difficult, um, particularly for somebody who doesn't keep up with all these things, to separate which are the marginal drugs and marginal uses from the really good drugs and good uses. And it's hard if you go to the conferences to separate the two because you're just bombarded with hype. And of course, um, uh, uh, um, the, the next part of it is even when the trials look great, uh, there are all these challenges with the design and conduct, like uh, bad margins and bad crossover and misuse of post-protocol therapies. And you know, we've been we're you know detailing those uh, for many years. Um, but I wonder if you might start with you know your motivating. What you know? What was it that originally motivated you? You both. I'll, I'll start with Bashal, and then I'll go to Nathan um, to start to think about we need a better way. I don't know, to, to sort, to quantify, to capture value and separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, the, the, the imatinibs, we're going to separate them somehow from the ramucirumabs. You know, so that's the question. So, you know, what was it about your background that led you to want to do this? I'll say even say thankless work because, you know, not a lot of oncologists are really interested in doing this. So let's start with you, Bishal. What, what led you to this? Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about what led me to this before you asked this question <laughs> i guess it, it was a it was a constellation of uh, uh events uh, like my my background from nepal and getting trained in a high income country and and seeing that stark difference in you know patients back in nepal not being able to afford even generic paclitaxel for ovarian cancer let's say but patients in in, in japan we're getting you know Sedidanibs and all those other anti-angiogenesis, uh, newer bevacizumabs, uh, despite uh, not uh, improving any survival, um, and that that led me to think like, how, how are we evaluating uh, cancer drugs as appropriate or inappropriate for, for our patients? What's the what's the benchmark? Well, like I used to trust the guidelines and and textbooks. Uh, but slowly it started to open up my eyes when I started to look behind those evidence that even if the guidelines are recommending it, it, it did not necessarily mean that uh, those were actually appropriate drugs. Because what had happened was uh, there was one of my patients back in Nepal uh, who was asking me for medical advice. And then I was I was recommending a drug uh, as if it was Japan, as if patients didn't have to pay. And the, the, the patient's family came back to me saying that they would have to sell their whole house to just get like a couple months worth of the treatment. And then I had to think like, is that drug really worth selling your, selling your whole house uh, for, for a couple months of treatment? 
Um, and the answer to me was no. And then I, I had to revisit my decision and I had to tell the patient, uh, patient's family that, uh, no, the benefit is marginal. So probably that's not a wise idea. And that's how I started to look after all these um, issues behind uh, uh, what forms uh, a benchmark for, for quality evidence and what we can expect from the drug for what we are paying out of it. Um, and obviously that started from ovarian cancer. And I, I think that's how you and I got in touch at the time we, we wrote those papers on, on negative trials in, in ovarian cancer and uh, that uh, JCO piece on, on uh, same data. Yeah. So that's how my whole journey started. Uh, but as I was graduating, I think in 2016 is, is when uh, ESMO and ASCO form, formulated their, their value assessment tools. And at the time, I, it, it, I was very pleased because A, I realized that this was not a, uh, you know, uh, a, a wild idea uh, only running in Binet's and my head about uh, evaluating the clinical benefit of cancer drugs. It was a legitimate uh, thing that even such big organizations were concerned about. So that sort of provided legitimacy to the type of work that I was doing anyway. So it made me feel very happy. Um, and now I'm, I'm extremely delighted that uh, I am here with uh, uh, people like you uh, who have inspired me and people like Nathan, who is the father of the SMMCBS tool, working with him together to improve the tool. So this is like a dream come true for me. That's terrific. Nathan, how about you? What what took you to make this tool? What brought you to this space? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I don't live in India and I don't live in the US. I mean, in, in Israel, like in, in most in, in most European and and, uh, and Asian countries, we have an HTA body, um, which called, and each year, the HCA body has a is given a budget, and so they've got so much money they can spend on on to, to bring new drugs uh, to, to, that are going to be reimbursed, and the, and and as part of that process, they ask the oncology society to, to rank um, what 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 are the most important drugs to go into the basket of services, and in two thousand and nine, <clears throat> well, 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 so I was on my sabbatical year in the Department of Bioethics at the NIH with Zeke Emanuel. Um, I, I got sent a copy of the list, and at the very top of the list, the most important drug to go into the basket of services was Avastin for breast cancer. Mm. I thought, that's crazy. <laughs> that is totally crazy. This is a drug that has PFS advantage, does not improve overall survival, does not improve quality of life, and it was the, 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 not, not only was it a, a, a ridiculous recommendation, but it undermined the credibility of yeah. the of the Israel Oncology Society. And, and I, I put this in writing and communicated with me membership of the society right. and got incredible pushback. Incredible, um, really quite incredible pushback to the point of insults and threats. Um, and, uh, and ultimately I was given an opportunity to, 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 to present my case, to present the argu an argument, um, and, um, which I did, and, and, the, and, and the decision was revised. Hmm. But but what that triggered that, that triggered me the the, the, the issue that that, that that we need a standard way to be able to evaluate what constitutes meaningful benefit or not and um, and uh, in, in consultation with a range of experts who, who, who I'd worked with previously both at Sloan Kettering in Australia um, in Tannock in Canada um, I, I started drafting out a, a, an initial draft of a magnitude of clinical benefit scale. I see. Um, 
And then I took the idea to ESMO because I said, you know, that this is something you know, I thought that firstly, if it is, if this is a project backed by a major organization, it would be substantially more impactful than if it's the, the Nathan Churney scale. Um, and, um, and, uh, and I put to them that this is something which is really important for the integrity of the organization, for the integrity of oncologists. And they said, thank you very much. And they didn't call back. Mm, interesting. Okay. And and that was in nineteen. That was in two thousand and eleven. And in two thousand and fourteen, when Martine Picard became the president of ESMO, um, she suddenly had an interest in the idea, and uh, she did call and said, "Look, let's do this." And um, and 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 we we spent a year. A group of oncologists, um, public health experts, biostatisticians, nutting this out. At the time, you know, the the board was very anxious about it because they were scared of um, of pushback from industry. Um, um, but it, it 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 is totally proven itself, um, and 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 so it, and it has now become really a centerpiece of the whole. Uh, scientific endeavor of, of the European Society for Medical Oncology. Um, you know, they see this as really the mark of their, a, a, a hallmark of their integrity. And um, um, and it has been taken up by HTA bodies all over, the, I mean, in, in many parts of the world. So, you know, from our, from this very limited dream of influencing things in Israel to really having our tool, which has really become now the, 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 the dominant tool in terms of evaluating the magnitude of benefit, um, uh, it's been a really, a really exciting and interesting, interesting ride. Um, yeah. As I'm sure you're aware that I developed a tool, um, and so we worked with them looking at the, uh, looking at the, the strengths and weaknesses of the two, of the, of the different tools, and, 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 um, and it became clear that there, were, that there were substantial methodological problems with the ASCO, with the, with the ASCO tool. Yes, and um, and uh, yeah, so this is this is sort of left the ESMO MCBS really as the as the dominant tool yeah. that's, that's across the world today. That's a terrific story, and I mean, I think it's a terrific success because um, you know, I think um, it, it's easy to see a problem in the world, and it's easy to tweet about it. That's easy. Everyone, everyone does that. <laughs> it's harder to try to push through peer review articles. It's harder to try to write meaningful critiques of things. It's harder to get professional societies to buy into it. It's harder to do that, that kind of real substantive work that leads to change. Um, you know, I just want to say that, that just because I think, I think you'll find it funny. Um, you know, many years ago, I had a really terrific resident at uh, OHSU, Jessica Dreiser, and we did a paper where, you know, we just looked in the literature to see what, uh, what authors consider clinically meaningful benefits. And then we compared them to the ASCO and the ESMO tools. Now, back in those days, I mean, I think um, these tools are uh, the first iteration, I think these are the first iteration of the tools. And I think the tools were good. Um, but I don't think anyone would say that those tools are really, really stringent, at least the first iteration. You could squeak by a lot of drugs through it. And it wasn't, you're not asking for home runs. You're asking for singles, you know, sing, base singles. Okay. So, you know, we asked that and we found that, of course, you can guess um, the authors of the studies, they were using the super, superlative salad. They were just saying meaningful benefit, meaningful benefit. And only about, you know, I think 60% of the time or 40% of the time for OS did actually meet, meet these guidelines. Um, I thought that was funny. Um, that, that, it, that, I mean, I think it's funny, but it also makes a point. And the point I want to make is this. The point is that um, 
Although maybe someday in the future, somebody will look back and they'll be like, oh, why did they feel like they needed to do this? I think those people will be missing the fact that the field was drowning in hype when you came to throw a, a life vest. It was drowning in hype when you came out with that first iteration. We were so far in hype. You can't even imagine unless you lived through that hype how important this was just to, just to draw some line into the sand. This is the first line. Now we'll move it from there. Um, Nathan, any thoughts on that? How, how that first line in the sand was? Well, that, that, that was exactly it. We, you know, we, we, were concerned, I mean, we were concerned that the hype was harmful to so many people. It was harmful for patients. It was harmful to the professional. It was, it was, it was, had harmful influence possibly on HTA bodies and on, distri on, on distribution of limited resources. And it, we, we needed to bring some order to the chaos. Furthermore, what, what, what adds to the chaos is the fact that, that, that so many different endpoints are used. And then you know, how, how do you bring into one tool, yes. maybe to take into consideration the, 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 say the, the, the limited surrogacy of, of, of outcomes like PFS when, when that's the primary outcome and that's the only data you've got compared to studies that have got overall survival and quality of life data and, 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 and toxicity. And, and getting, that, getting that balance right was, is an ongoing part of the challenge. We are, we are constantly reviewing the, the scores that we generate to look to see how reasonable or unreasonable they are. And, 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 and this is why we're, we're coming up now with the third iteration the third of, of, of the tool we're coming out later on this year, um, as well as for the first time, a version of the tool which has been validated for hematological malignancies, which is another vast field, lots of really expensive drugs. Near and dear to me, yeah. No one has no one has applied these sort of matrices to up until now, and and we will have a matrix for for for, for those as well. Oh, that's terrific! I look forward to those those updates. And um, Michelle, why don't you talk a little bit about this new paper? So this is the paper. You're the lead author of this paper. This is a new paper out in Esmo Open. Um, this, this represents, I think, uh, a nice attempt to summarize a lot of the problems that we've been cataloging in, in uh, numerous papers on crossover, on, on non-inferiority and things like that. Um, why don't you talk about this paper? What's this paper called and, and what, do you, what do you hope to accomplish there? Uh, yeah, so this is a paper titled Biases in Study Design, Implementation and Data Analysis that distort the appraisal of clinical benefit in ESMO MCBSC scores. So uh, as a background, uh, like, as you mentioned, like I was, I was checking for a couple of drugs, uh, their value scores, and I don't recall exactly which drug, but a drug that seemed low value to me had received a high SMOMCBC score. And, and that, uh, uh, that particular instance made me think, why is this happening? Uh, why is this particular drug getting such high scores? Although my my personal reading of the literature or my experience says that this is not that good a drug. Mm -hmm. And then I think that that, that that particular trial had uh, used a SOBI standard control arm and that's why it had a right, good right, right. Yeah. Go okay. <laughs> yeah, substandard uh, controls, classic, yeah. okay. So that's how it ended up getting a good MCBC <laughs> score because its hazard ratio is impressive. So that made me realize that, okay, yes, uh, we are looking at the hazard ratio, we are looking at toxicities, we are looking at quality of life benefit. We are looking at all those issues that are important while coming up with the SMO MCBSC score. But if the trial is fundamentally flawed in its design, then, then that's a way how the, the drug can cheat into getting a good score. So, uh, and when Nathan asked me last year uh, to 
to present about those issues in trial design uh, that could affect the scores in the ESMO um, annual meeting. Um, I I, uh, I try to look more into it uh, to gather some of uh, like what what else can affect the scores. One was service standard control arm that I had come across. Um, and I presented at the ESMO meeting, then Nathan and I did a lot of back and forth discussing more and more issues. And what started with, uh, you know, three or four issues ended up being 10 different issues. Uh, but I think uh, now we have we have a comprehensive list of everything. Uh, yeah, maybe not everything, but almost everything that can, <laughs> that can uh, affect the design of the trial, analysis of the trial, or implementation of the trial issues that are not currently reflected in the SMIMCBS tool, but now this gives us a, a list of uh, issues that we can think how to address in the future um, editions or revisions of the, of the tool so that we are able to incorporate them. And even if we are not, I think uh, this is a good teaching tool for trainees and oncologists all over the world to just go through that checklist and, and tally every trial that they read, whether those trial has has those deficiencies or not. So we are, we are proud of this work because, and that's the reason we published it as open access is because we think uh, any trainees or oncologists all over the world can can make use of this paper as a teaching tool. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's spot on. And it's that, um, you know, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's just what, you know, I always like to tell people, you know, you can just never read the conclusion and take it for granted. You have to actually think about the study. Was the control arm the right control arm? Did they introduce crossover when they ought not to have? Did they not introduce crossover when they ought to have? Did they uh, do a non-inferiority study? Was the margin so big you could parallel park a school bus in that margin? Was the control arm adequate? And, you know, it's funny you say that, um, you know, comprehensive, uh, but then you added uh, at least as far as you know for now, because I think you're right on something, you know, every year that goes on, I always find there's a new way I'm getting fooled and I have to open up. I have to add another chapter to the book of uh, ways I've been fooled, um, you know, because uh, there's a new way and you don't even see it at first glance. Um, Nathan, I wonder if you might uh, talk a little bit about um, either this paper or where you see this moving, building on Vishal's comments. Yeah. Again, uh, the, the, my, my impetus in terms of even asking Vishal to do that actually came from listening to your show. Ah. When I listened to your discussion on Mona Lisa Seven, I, 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 I was actually embarrassed that Mona Lisa Seven had scored so highly. Mm, yes. But, you know, you know, so you know, you just remind you that this is the issue of um, of, of ribocyclob is a yes. in, in a first line setting in premenopausal women. Yes. Where, where about well, protocol therapy is is very poor. Where twenty five percent of the patients yeah. had never received any po any post progression treatment yes this is this that's is criminal yeah criminal as i uh, yeah it's criminal because yeah. we we know that disease is a disease you could put many more treatments for these patients you know you can put many more i know it in fact, yeah. in fact, you know, andy Seidman has, has published guidelines about breast cancer studies and, and in that sort of that exact setting mm -hmm. of the of the uh, the, ER, the, the the receptor positive her2 negative patient he says there are at least six lines of therapy the patients should be having. Yes, I agree. And twenty-five percent of patients got 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 none. Got nothing yeah. after protocol. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. I actually tried to explore this with a corresponding author. He, he himself was was um, you know, was having difficulty getting data out of Novartis to be able to answer my questions. 
Oh, of course. I've, oh, Nathan, I've so many times I've emailed these corresponding authors and they say, oh, I don't have any data. You got to talk to the company. Company won't give me data. And then I was like, why the f- is your name on that paper then? As I said, why is your name on that paper? You don't have anything. You don't know anything. What do you name on that paper for? Um, yeah, no, I, okay, go on. Sorry, pardon my French. <laughs> I didn't say it. It may be very sensitive to the notion that, the, the, that these sort of flaws are compromising my integrity and the integrity of our tool. And so I figured you know, we, we, we need to start, to start addressing this, to identify what are the things that can distort our scores and to see what, what you know, as, a, as a next step, what we will do to, to introduce, to try to either um, annotate these, these issues or penalize these issues, but, but at least to bring, them, to bring them to this discussion in a very ordered and structured manner and, and emphasizing also but these are just not our idiosyncrasies. Or, or everything, every every issue that we brought to the table has been brought up and backed by the EMA and the FDA. Yes. Uh, and 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 the and 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 the and the ICH. These are not new issues. These are issues that are meant to be regulated, but are are frequently unregulated. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I was just going to add to it. Um, you know, um, with 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 uh, Mani Moyudin, we just did this thing in JAMA Network Open where he looked at post protocol therapies in myeloma, and it is a it is a it is an embarrassment, uh, multiple myeloma disease where you can just keep going through lines of therapies, and there's a huge fraction of people who get no further therapy post protocol, which distorts every OS because OS then is I mean if you I mean I, I hate to say this, but if you take a drug that does nothing. But all it does is delay progression. It does no OS benefit. But you wed it to a, dr- a backbone that actually does improve OS. If you run these randomized trials where no post-protocol therapy is given, you're really giving a trial of more backbone versus less backbone. You'll find an OS benefit not related to the actual drug. It's an artifact of the amount of backbone you've given. Um, but so that was just one thought. And then um, the other thought I have is, um, um, Nathan, you're inspiring me. Where, how can can someone sign up for this panel? I want to be on this team. I want to be on this team. This is a good team. I got Bishal. I got Nathan. I mean, I, I mean, how, how do you, how does one join the ESMO panel? First, anyone can anyone can correspond with us. Okay. Um, we, we 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 do we do we, we people we, we do advertise for new membership periodically, and people can people who are members of ESMO are welcome are welcome to, to submit applications, and. Um, and, and, and I think as Bishal, Bishal can testify, it's really a very interesting and a fun ride. We another, another thing that we're looking at is the quality of quality of life data. Uh-huh. And, you know, and, 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 and because quality of, quality of life can not only give an, cause an upgrade on using the SMM CBS, but if a, if, a, if, a, if a PFS study has no overall survival data, yes. no overall survival advantage, and a, quality, and a quality of life study was done which showed no quality of life gain, they get penalized because it's essentially saying that, it, 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 that, that, there, that's, that there is failed surrogacy. And failed surrogacy means you've really, really got an, an, an empty hand of cards. That's a terrific topic. I'll, I'll just tell you one thing on that topic that I think is really interesting, um, and I, I'll give you a reference for it. The reference is Allison Haslam um, in, in JAMA Network Open, and it was like duration of, of checking quality of life. But here was the, the short answer. The short answer is- It is quoted in our paper. What's it that? Is. Oh, you're, you've seen this paper? Yeah, it, is, it is cited in our paper. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. what? 
that paper we have cited in our- oh, oh, in your current paper, I see, right. But I also, okay, okay, you're very, you're familiar with it. Okay, well, I'll tell listeners. So, so somebody who he can hear, that's be interested in what I have to say. Okay, I'll tell listeners. The, the, the basic idea is this, you know, I mean, it's easy to say, I mean, there's two things that matter, living longer and then quality of life. But quality of life isn't just quality of life in the first six weeks you're on a protocol. It's quality of life if you go down that journey path. And all of these studies, they never collect quality of life. So one can imagine a drug that truly prolongs first PFS, but then the progression's come fast and furious so you run out of options, you're, you'll have a quality of life decrement post-protocol that's never captured in these quality of life um, metrics. But even in PFS1, even during the PFS, unless you're seeing that there's delayed deterioration in quality of life, then what I, is I, it? And, we, and we never see an improvement in quality of life. Now, we haven't had oh. a single paper that's shown an improvement in quality of life. You know, uh, if, you, if you don't have... If mature survival mm-hmm. data shows that there's no gain, you don't have much. You know. And this was this was a story with 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 vivacism open breast cancer. Yes, just to go back to that and to, to, to that initial trigger. Um, so um, let me so, ask you this. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Finish, finish your thought. So, so you know, in, in the back of my mind, I was I was waiting for the for the pl- for, for the plenary session where you say, "Hey, what's with this? Is my MCBS stuff? Okay, high scores to all these all these rotten studies, okay, and 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 I and I wanted to to preemptively address the issue before it it, it got the the, the Vinay Prasad treatment." <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for thank you for that. I mean, well, I guess I I, I feel like I have I have one listener uh, that uh, that appreciates it. Um, uh, okay, good. I'm glad I'm glad to keep you honest. Um, no, what what I want to ask you this? Oh, so here's my question to both of you. It's sort of a philosophical question now that you've done this work, but I'm actually kind of genuinely curious what you think of it. Um, you know that old saying: Why does the rabbit run faster than the fox? The rabbit runs for his life, and the fox just runs for a meal. By that I mean the incentives in this ecosystem are different. We are, we are the ones chasing the people who design and conduct studies and saying, hey, guess what? I've been following up on your study. And I noticed after, after several years of observation, you know, you're not doing a good job documenting quality of life. You're not doing a good job with post-protocol therapy. You're not doing a good job with your control arms. You know, here's our empirical analysis of the last five years. Here's another paper, another paper, another paper. But meanwhile, they're running ahead. They're running, 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 and they're running. They find new things. They found issues with drug dosing. They found this thing to do. They found that thing to do. They got censoring problems. They got this problem. They got that problem. They got some new thing they don't, that we don't even know about. Going to take you a few years to catch up to them to figure out what they're up to now. Um, my question is, if, if the goal of this whole process, and forgive me, I'm maybe a naive oncologist. I thought the goal of this process was to make drugs that are better for people who are suffering from cancer. I thought that was the goal. And if that is the goal, and the person who's in charge of Testing those products is the person who's going to make a ten billion dollars if they win. P of 0.049, Bishal, they get the ten billion dollars. P of 0.051, they they might even be able to get ten billion dollars with this ODAC. With this ODAC is oh, take it, we'll take it, we'll take it. But you know, in a normal world, they get pushed away. But I guess my question is: Are we always going to be two steps behind the latest game, or will we ever be able to catch them? And if we want to catch them. By catch them, I mean have trials that are congruent with patient interest, not like we're trying to punish anybody. Um, what do we need to do for that? Any thoughts? You, you, you need to change the, the incentivization, and the, and the incentivization is driven by Medicare Part D. Yes, that's in the past. You know that the, 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 and 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 the mandate of the of the FDA and, and EMA. As long as their mandate is to 
the license, any drug which is safe and, and effective, and even without defining effectiveness and marginal effectiveness, still quite, if it's, it's better than the last drug, that still quite counts for effectiveness. Yes. As then, the, uh, the, the, the Medicare Part D laws give them, suspend all market forces and say, you choose your own price and yes. we will pay it. Okay. This creates all sorts of bizarre incentives. Yes. You know, so so until when 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 those incentives are taken away, then then the then 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 the game will change. But 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 until the this bizarre suspension of market forces and over incentivization is is changed, we're going to be stuck with 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 the same cycle. Yes, I believe that's right. Yeah, Michelle. Yeah, thoughts. Yeah, no, I think that's. I think you're you're right. That's what I think. Yeah. I think there is also this issue of regulatory capture, right? Like people like us who are trying to do uh, this work of trying to, you know, make sure that the trials are conducted properly, they are reported properly, there is no bias in trial design, uh, drugs are really efficacious, and they need to pass a certain benchmark before getting approved, yes. a higher benchmark for getting reimbursed. We are all doing this out of out of I don't know why are we even doing this? We're we're doing this despite the lack of motivation because we believe in that greater good. Yeah. Uh, yes, there is some motivation in that. Uh, okay, papers and academic currencies and but I think it's much easier to gain those academic currencies writing papers that other people will write for you and and give money for you. Yeah. For, uh, for doing so, it's much difficult to write your own papers and go through, do all this research uh, and build those academic credentials. But on the other hand, there is a huge financial incentive for, for keeping things as they are, right? For, for getting more surrogate endpoints, for, uh, you know, uh, fulfilling only one half of the equation of accelerated approval, but not fulfilling the second half of the equation. Uh, and there is a huge financial incentive in doing this. The industry obviously wants to devote its heart, mind, and soul uh, in doing that. But what is the incentive for for people who who try to keep this under balance? Who try to like you, you refer to the ODAC meeting? Uh, what is the incentive for honest people to yes. put that extra effort to sign up to become a member to make yes. a presentation and vote no? But yes. there are many incentives. If if you are lined up with the industry, the industry will do all that on your behalf. They will they will. Um, like you'll be a key opinion leader without yes. uh, having to do anything just by voting yes. Yes. We do know that the, 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 the industry do not like getting scores of one and two on uh-huh. their drug. <clears throat> uh, and, 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 and they, um, uh, uh, they, 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 they know that hurts them and they know that's going to hurt them in markets that have HTA bodies. Yes. Uh, a few with European markets, Canada, perhaps. Yeah. Which is which is many markets outside the United States. It's too bad and- that we're seventy percent of the market. <laughs> That's a problem. The way yeah, we got all the cash. But you know, yeah. I just want to say one thing about the the ODAX. I mean, to to build on Bishal's point, um, we just saw this week six drugs they failed the confirmatory study. The confirmatory studies are a low enough bar. That's one thing they failed. You know, you've documented nicely, Bishal, in that paper with Kesselheim in JAMA Internal Medicine. The accelerated approvals, it's already kind of a joke. They're confirming them based on the same surrogate that they used to approve in the first place. So what the hell are you doing? It's either not a valid surrogate or it is a valid surrogate. You can't have it both ways. Anyway, so now they do the confirmatory studies. They don't work. Six trials. 
But these panelists, four out of six, they vote to keep it on the market. It would have been six out of six if Rick had just kept his mouth shut. Rick had to basically twist him to say, don't do those. I can't take it anymore. If the oncologists in this space, to your point, Bashal, they are repeat customers. The repeat, um, they have a repeat stake with these companies. They're going to have to go to these companies on Tuesday and negotiate their next IIT. They have the meeting on Tuesday and on Monday, they got to vote to keep it on the market or not. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm being a dramatic, but this is the point. How can you tell them? How are you going to tell Merck, we're going to pull your Pembro approval and then on Tuesday, ask it for your IIT in the neoadjuvant setting. Ask them for a favor. You need them to do favors. If you don't get their favors, you can kiss your trialist career goodbye. There's not a trialist in this world who has any shot of success unless they curry the favor of the company. The company can always strike down the studies, even the cooperative groups. They need the company to give the drug. So this is this ecosystem we've created. We've created a system. It's a courtroom trial and it's a murder trial. But however you vote in the murder trial, you got to go home with the defendant. You got to go home with that guy and you got to have to lay in bed next to that person. How are you going to vote? to? You're going to take it easy on this person. And I think that's the crux of the issue. Nathan, any thought? No, sorry. sorry. You want to say something? Go ahead. Say something. What I mean by regulatory capture. So that's how regulatory capture happens. One half of the, like one, one part of the, uh, of of the debate does not have that much incentive. They're, They're just trying to do good. Uh, because of their consigns. But the other half has huge incentive to, to make results the way they want. Uh, and that, that's what we have been seeing every day. Uh, you say that accelerator approval is a package, right? Accelerator approval does not mean just the first half of the equation of getting drugs approved early based on surrogate endpoints. There is the other half of the equation. That means you should confirm benefit. And if you can't, the, the approval will be withdrawn. Yes. And if can't honor the second half of the equation, uh, you can't get the first half of the equation either. It comes as a package. Yes, I agree. I mean, I mean what, 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 you're, what, you're, what you're suggesting is that, is that, the, is that the, the people on the ODAC have got, have got conflicted interests. Yes, and, they do. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. They all, I mean, most of them, the vast majority do. And it's that, I mean, that, to my mind, that would require a structural change in the structure of the ODAC. So you know that this should be, you know, either healthcare professionals or 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 data scientists who 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 are not conflicted because the moment you the moment you bring bring in all these all these sort of conflicts, it um, you know, people are human. People are human, and they there are even if they even if they're not doing this consciously, the the whole issue of your reciprocity yes, is off. That's it. Yes. But, a, 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 a subconscious reflex, yes. um, and um, and, it, and and there's a, there's a whole biology of reciprocity which 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 has been which has been described, and you know, and and this, and this is why um, the the issue of, of selection of people for this sort of task who need to be free of you know outside the outside the loop outside the loop you know, to, to, to to so so that these decisions can be can be based on the based on the data and not on on possibly subconscious competing interests. I you, agree you, with you wholeheartedly. I mean, I think there. I mean, we, there, there's the three buckets of their uh, the problems with the ODEC. I mean, the one bucket is that they have personally taken money from these companies and they stand to take money in the future. That's true of the FDA members too. They're they're going to go work for to be medical director VP at Janssen at this place at that company. That's where they go when they're done with the job. The next bucket is the fact that even if they're not taking money in their own pocket, they need these companies for the trials. And you, you know, we're tr- I mean, not we, not me, because I don't do that. But other, I mean, I don't run trials. Um, but other people run trials, and you need the company to play 
ball. So that's the other kind of uh, quit, you know, the other kind of reciprocity bucket. And then the third bucket that we haven't even talked about, which is related to your article, which is related to this podcast, I think, and the book Malignant that I tried to, you know, write for this goal, which is that they don't even know what to look for. No one taught them. No one taught them what, uh, you know, what, what to look for in trials, what control arms mean. No one taught them what the implications of keeping a drug on market that has failed uh, are for the broader market ecosystem. They're not even thought, they haven't even thought about that. They said things at the ODAC that, that, that blew my mind. They said that we know in uncontrolled experience that a fraction of people have durable benefit. I was like, but, but the randomized data shows that, you know, the, the difference in the tails is actually may not even be that much in some of these malignancies. It doesn't have the same durability as you might think. Um, they said that like, you know, um, if one person benefits from it, we have to offer it to everyone. Um, and by one person benefits, they mean an anecdote that they benefited. And I was like, but if that is your regulatory bar, then every failed study has one person who benefited. I mean, I can think of a 15 drugs that never made it to market because they failed in studies, but we'll bring them all back. And in fact, we are, it's called Tavozinib. Tavozinib was a shitty drug 15 years ago, but it just kept trying and trying and trying. Now it's back on the market. Um, uh, you know, so I think it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, it, they don't know how to interpret the studies. Um, they uh, they have these deep conflicts with it. Um, and and then the, the, and the real problem is there's no external squeeze, which is that, you know, the average person in the public, they heard that, um, oh, you voted to keep um, a tezolizumab for um, platinum ineligible patients as a first-line treatment option for urothelial cancer. Uh, okay, you know, like they don't know. Um, and and they're counting on the system to protect them and their taxpayer money and, and give them good choices. Michelle, thoughts? Uh, yeah, a lot of thoughts. Uh, first, I, I totally agree that uh, many, even experts, do not understand the the seriousness of the problem and some of the things that were told during the ODAC meeting as a justification of why the drug, as the drug's approval needs to be maintained, blew my mind. Like level of ignorance, uh, and 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 people having the power to vote yes or no, having that much power, but having so much of ignorance about some fundamental statistical principles of, of, of trials. And seriously, I have to ask whether, whether, whether some of these people can't see or they actually see or are pretending to be blind. Like there is a difference. Mm, yes, there's a and difference, yeah. The paper that uh, Nathan and I wrote uh, are for people who can't see so that it will help for people to see things. But if people who can see but are but are pretending but are turning a blind eye because it's in their favor to to be blind, uh, then then the, <laughs> this paper is not going to help. Yeah. <laughs> because one of the one of one example I'll give you. Yes. Uh, with regards to atezolizumab in triple negative breast cancer, the first trial that led to executive approval. Yes. Because they saw a survival difference. Yes. 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 That not survival analysis could not have even happened. Yeah. That was against their own statistical design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Survival analysis should not have happened. Yes, it's hierarchical design. It should not have happened. It's likely to be spurious. And then the paclitaxel data comes, it's negative. They still say no. And then they're 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 pegging it to some neoadjuvant study that is neither here nor there, has nothing to do with this. Listen to this. The, the actual argument that, that was made at the ODAC meeting. So this is the statistical analysis that was not supposed to happen. They still did and said there is a survival difference. Yes. And the FDA said, okay, we'll give preliminary approval, confirm it. Yeah. Confirmity trial failed. Yeah. Failed OS, failed PFS. Now the argument they are making is this confirmatory trial is probably false negative, <laughs> but that uh, OS difference they saw in the preliminary trial that was against the statistical um, yeah. principle. Yeah. Is a real one. Yeah. So we have to trust that that is a real positive. Yeah. Yeah. 
one a properly powered trial for the same is a false negative. Only, only only the failures are false negatives and all the successes are real. You know, Bishal, if if you're ignorant but very confident, there's a place for you. It's called Twitter. <laughs> That's it's not a, it's not the ODEC. It's Twitter. It's Twitter. Um, Nathan, uh, I know our time's about up. Um, maybe I'll give you the last thoughts on this issue. I'm sure you have several thoughts. Um, what are your last thoughts on, on, on this? I mean, I guess we could go on all day, but I see the the regulatory process is a, is, a, is a whole is a whole separate issue. Um, I, 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 I'm not familiar enough to, to, to with with the, with the processes of the EMA to see if, if they are compromised by the same sorts of problems or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suspect that, that they are not as compromised as the FDA, and it's interesting to see where the where, where, there are differences in the decisions about about licensing and um, between, between, between the two bodies, um, and 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 I, I, I see our, our paper is not going to solve the licensing issue, but our paper is going to try to give people the tools to take take off their rose-coloured glasses and to have a, a structured approach to be able to critically read literature and. Um, and uh, you know, amongst our, amongst the, the things that the Bishal and I have been working on is we've also got a teaching slide set to, to teach people how to do this sort of thing, and and and, and I think that that, that 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 will probably make its way also to 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 open access, um, and that really gives people a very strong ten point checklist, uh, which is very very clearly explained, um, and and will hopefully encourage and uh, and teach a new generation. To be more critical, read, more effective critical readers, and, and and not to be reading literature with those colored glasses, and then to take that into ODEC discussions and so on. Yeah, oh, terrific, Nathan Cherney. Yeah, no, it's terrific. Um, look forward to that, Nathan Cherney, Bashal Gaywali. Thanks so much for doing this. My great pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, I, I'll have to say before we leave that uh, I'm very grateful to Nathan for providing me this opportunity to work together. I have really learned a lot working with him. It has it has been an honor. And he's, he's such a rigorous scientist. And uh, yeah, um, it has been a, a very wonderful learning experience. That sounds great. We love you and we're glad you're part of the team, Michelle. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Bye. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.